Hey, before we get into this episode today, I just wanted to let you know that we would greatly appreciate if you liked, subscribed, left a review, five stars, five testicles, whatever you want to call them on this podcast. That will help this podcast rank higher in search results so that in the future, anybody who's searching for resources when they've just been diagnosed or have just become a survivor or is a caregiver, they can find this podcast more easily and listen to your stories. Thank you so much. And let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Welcome back to It Takes Balls, presented by Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. Today, I'm joined by one of our board members. He's also a urologic oncologist and chief of urology at Penn Presbyterian Hospital at University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Phil Parazio. Thank you so much for being here. Steve, great to uh, be here and join you. So today we're going to talk about the patient and provider relationship, which was not something even on my radar when I pitched you to be on this podcast, but it's a great topic. Yeah, it's, uh, I think one of the most important things we do as physicians is kind of establish that relationship. You know, yes, we can provide therapies and diagnoses and do all of the textbook things we need to do, but that relationship is hugely important to, uh, to a good outcome, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I was fortunate to have some great doctors, but I think every doctor thinks they're great. Maybe they're not always great. So it's important to have a team that you, that you trust. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, it's especially in testicular cancer, but any disease that's kind of rare. Right. And, you know, I think that's some of the most important questions that people should ask when they have a, a new diagnosis, whether it's testicular cancer or not is, you know, how common is this disease? How commonly does this provider see patients like me? And then the second part of that question is, do I feel comfortable with this person? And the way I always describe it is, listen, we all want to think we're going to have a smooth journey through cancer or surgery or whatever it may be. But facts are there's often bumps in the road and somebody who's experienced and somebody that you get along well with and you have a good relationship with can help keep those bumps in the road just as they are as bumps in the road and prevent something small from becoming something big or, or catastrophic or, or really problematic for you and your family. You mentioned going to somebody who knows what they're doing as a urologic oncologist. I mean, you are specifying in testicular cancer among other things. I think you do kidney cancer as well, but for us, testicular cancer is important. And as you mentioned, testicular cancer is kind of rare and uh, testicles, not something, you know, a lot of people are in open talking about, so, I mean, how do you kind of break down that wall? Yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, the, the numbers just to go over for everybody, right? 9,000 new diagnoses per year in the United States. Cure rate's 95%. So there's hundreds of thousands of survivors around there, uh, around the U.S. at least, and, and even more around the world. Most trained urologic oncologists should be comfortable managing men with at least early stage testicular cancer. And, and that's what we see most often, right? These are guys with stage one disease who are surveillance, or you talk about chemotherapy or, or, or even RPLNDs in some, but as things get more advanced and more complex, you start whittling down that pie even more and recurrent disease, post chemotherapy, RPLNDs. These are things where you're no longer even talking about thousands of men per year. You're talking about hundreds of men per year split amongst urologists in this country. And once again, if you, if you break down the numbers, there's about 10,000 urologists 
in the United States. These are general urologists, right? Um, or, or any urologist. So on average, 9,000 cases, 10,000 urologists, the average urologist is going to see one testicular cancer per year. That's probably not someone you want managing a complex rare disease. Urologic oncologists are probably seeing dozens um, you know, maybe 20 or so uh, in a heavy practice. And some of the real busy practices will see, you know, 50 to 100, 150, 200 men per year with testicular cancer. But those are the large referral centers or the large cancer referral centers around the country. So you, you are someone who has worked with many cases, right? I would hope yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, uh, I see a lot of men with testicular cancer and it's, uh, you know, it's never a joy taking care of cancer patients, right? It's always a very challenging conversation and, and diagnosis, but it can be incredibly rewarding to help somebody through through that journey, especially in a disease that's really unique. Young men, young families, really important questions, not only about the disease, but, you know, starting families and, you know, are they going to be normal? All of these challenges to who they are as, as young men, uh, are really big questions that it's it's incredibly rewarding to work through, knowing that the vast majority of them are going to do well. Elaborate more on going to somebody who who is a kind of specializes in this because, like you said, the average urologist is only going to see one case. I mean, somebody out in the middle of nowhere in the United States who doesn't have access to somebody like you, where do they go? Yeah, it's it's really hard, and some of it are just the logistical problems of healthcare in the United States right now. It's it's really hard to transfer care or sometimes get someplace physically. But I would say that's where organizations like the Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation um, come into play, where they can at least help you get other opinions from from experts or more experienced people around the country who can certainly weigh in and make sure you're on the you're on the right path. And I think the example that was set before us was, you know, Larry Einhorn at the, in, at Indiana. I mean, uh, I think the man gets 200 emails a day in response to all of them from, you know, either testicular cancer survivors or their loved ones or other providers. And he set a tone and an example where the vast majority of us are reachable on a regular basis and happy to help men because we recognize sometimes just answering an email or a phone or a text message or a Facebook message now in you know, 2022 can make sure that somebody gets the right care and goes down the right pathway. We have a question from the testicular cancer support group, which anybody who's listening doesn't know it exists. Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation has a support group where you can go or your loved ones can go and ask all kinds of questions. And somebody asked, what do you wish your patients would ask you that they normally do not? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of questions that I see people come back with issues uh, is about survivorship. And I think most people end up making good decisions for themselves regarding management, meaning whether it's surveillance or chemotherapy or surgery and what order to do those things. I think people are pretty thoughtful about the nuts and bolts kind of management from A to B decisions. I think where I see men struggle the most is with the emotional or mental or psychological stresses of this disease. And I try and bring it up with them. I know there are a lot of other providers there that, that do, but I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, you know, trained specifically in those areas, but I wish men who are struggling would reach out and ask uh, ask questions when they are not feeling normal. Cause sometimes even as a urologist, who's, who's not trained in, in, 
necessarily psychology. I can say, yeah, you know what you're experiencing is totally normal and that's okay. Or we can sit there and say, you know what? I don't have an answer for you, but you're definitely struggling and I'd like to get you to somebody who could help. So that's what I worry most about is the survivorship and the, the mental health aspects of this disease. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And you know, that goes hand in hand with it being taboo. People don't really want to talk about it. And then on top of it, men aren't always the first ones to seek mental help. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's one of the things we do at the TCAF. It's one of our main missions is to raise awareness and raising awareness, you know, what's mostly advertised are testicular self exams and making people aware of this disease and early diagnosis. But awareness also has to do with all of the burden of disease, burden of treatment, what happens to men and families after they're diagnosed. And it's a really unique disease in that standpoint, too. I mean, for the most part, we know this is men 15 to 45 are the peak ages. These are young men in some really formative years, major relationships, starting families, major employment, right? Starting off career pathways or changing career pathways and now throw a major cancer diagnosis right smack in the middle of that. And all of those feelings of optimism and invincibility that young men are stereotypically you know, known for all of a sudden get a major challenge to them. And, and fortunately, most men most people, I wouldn't say just men, women, probably even more resilient at, at times, but, you know, fortunately, most people are really, really, really resilient, but sometimes you need some help to get through that. And it's not always the easiest. You mentioned young guys being kind of in the primes of their lives when they get this diagnosis. So how does that kind of inform your treatment plan that you come up with them? Because, you know, later in this podcast, we're going to talk with um, Olympic swimmer, Nathan Adrian, who. I think he elected not to do chemo because of the side effects and he was training for the Olympics. So, I mean, do you take the kind of lifestyle considerations into, into the mix here when you're deciding on whether or not to give a certain type of chemo or RPL and D? Yeah, absolutely. I think you need to. And the way I start the conversations and I'm, I'm sure at least one person I've, I've taken care of is going to be listening. Uh, so they probably heard me say, and anybody I've taken care of, I typically say, listen, I'm really sorry you're dealing with this, but this is a disease of survivors. Statistically speaking, you're going to get out ahead of this. And so we need to think about survivorship. Everything you wanted to do before you were diagnosed with this, we want you to do after. And so we need to take those things into account as we're making our management decisions moving forward. The most common one and the easiest one to talk about is uh, family planning, right? And, you know, whether men are single, in relationships, starting a family, thinking about a family, gay, straight, doesn't matter. Are you thinking about having children in the future or your own natural children? That's a really easy question. And if the answer to that is yes, then the next conversation is about sperm banking you know, before any treatment. And that's the simplest thing to do, but that's a really important question that sometimes gets overlooked. You know, chemotherapy can render, you know, 15, 20% of the population who gets chemotherapy can be permanently infertile afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that's a big deal. And if you haven't had that conversation beforehand, that can be really challenging to try and pick up the pieces afterwards. And so, you know, that, that's just one example, you know, obviously, obviously, um, uh, Nathan's a, a unique story, but you do see, you do see elite athletes make unique decisions about their careers and their competition. And as long as it's done in consultation with the physician and it's not putting their overall longevity at risk, listen, that's competing for a gold medal. There's not many of us who get to do that. And if you've spent the last decade 
or more of your life training for that spot, then it's really important to take that into consideration. What about like the different types of chemo? I don't know if you can speak to that. Um, like the bleomycin, I know kind of affects the lungs. Are you considering people who are smokers or who work in a, a job or, you know, that requires heavy lifting and they're kind of exerting their lungs a lot more than somebody with a desk job? Yeah. So bleomycin, one of the big toxicity of bleomycin is it certainly can affect the lungs. And what it causes is something called pulmonary fibrosis, which basically means kind of a tightening or stiffening of the lungs. It can make it harder to expand your lungs completely. And it could also make it harder for oxygen to diffuse across the lung membranes. Most of that for the vast majority of us would not be perceptible. You would not be able to notice a difference. But for an elite athlete who's someone, uh, if anybody has training or uses their Apple watch or anything, a VO2 max is kind of how much oxygen you can store and move and, and compete at a high level. Somebody who's competing at high levels with a high VO2 max may notice very subtle differences in their ability to diffuse oxygen. So that's why Lance Armstrong chose a different regimen. Um, you know, that's why Nathan, if he had chemotherapy, I don't know his whole story, you know, may have chosen to avoid bleomycin as well. Um, the data says definitely men who are older than 50 have a higher risk of pulmonary toxicities with bleomycin. So we typically try and avoid bleomycin in that group. There's controversial data about smoking, about um, asthmatics and other pulmonary disease. In general, if somebody has normal pul pulmonary function tests and they're not an elite athlete, uh, they should be fine with bleomycin uh, for the most part. And then it really comes down to the, once again, the discussion of three cycles of BEP versus four cycles of EP, which is still hotly debated uh, you know, among the oncology crew for, for this disease. And let's talk more about the the differences between the chemo and, you know, we always talk about the oncologic outcomes or, or the, the data. That's always the first place to start. And oncologically meaning cancer cure rate, they're pretty much equivalent. It's hard to really argue that one is better than, uh, than the other in terms of cancer cure rate, where you will see differences are in certainly provider level experience, center level experience. Some centers believe in BEP versus EP. The big difference in my opinion, comes down to three cycles versus four cycles. And anybody who's been through chemotherapy, I have not, but I've, I've managed lots of men who've, who've gone down that pathway. The side effects get worse with every cycle, right? And they certainly stack on each other. And you'll see some men get their first cycle and it's not a big deal. Second cycle gets a little worse. Third cycle is even worse. And you see men who get knocked completely on their ass after the first cycle. And, and so it is highly individualized. And what is certainly the case is that each cycle gets worse. And so for some men, three cycles is much better for their quality of life than four cycles. And I think that's where a lot of the decision-making comes in. Um, and that's where a lot of the talk about preference comes in. Is it better to kind of take the stronger cocktail and be done in three versus stretching it out a little bit more and, and going for four, but not having the pulmonary risk. And that really comes down to, personal preferences and, and understanding that really you're going to get the same cure rate from either treatment. It's just which one makes the most sense to you. Interesting. Okay. We have another question that says, how should patients educate themselves so they better understand what is going on? Yeah. So the first thing is you need to educate yourself about yourself. So I encourage all men especially young men with testicular cancer to kind of start a binder or a folder with their medical records. And the reason is 
young people tend to move around. They change providers. Doctors are going to retire throughout your career. You're going to get handed off from one to another. So you are going to be the best steward of your medical care. So understand everything about your own diagnosis and your own management. So were you, you know, uh, what kind of disease did you have initially? What was your initial clinical stage? That is, you know, what, how advanced was the cancer at diagnosis? What treatments did you get on what days? Now, listen, you don't need to know all the details of dosing and such, but you should keep those things in record somewhere because there may be a provider one day who wants those. Instead of having to make 17 phone calls, as you go through these things, you collate one binder and this is your testicular cancer history who you saw, when you saw them, what were your treatments, when were your last testing? And it also helps you understand, all right, I went down this treatment pathway. I had an RPLND. What's my imaging protocol after RPLND? How often do I have to get tumor markers? And you can hold yourself accountable. So then that's the first thing I say is be your, you know, first educate yourself on yourself, understand your disease, what you're going through. And then I think the other part of it is educate yourself about the disease. Right. And everybody's in a different part of this journey and a different part of the pathway. So when you're first getting diagnosed, what is testicular cancer? Why did I develop testicular cancer? What in general, what are the management strategies? What are the pluses and minuses to each one? And you should be able to speak to a provider who can put that out in plain language. But as you said, sometimes depending on where people are and what their circumstances are, they may not have that person right in front of them. If you don't, there are really good internet resources there are really awful internet resources. So obviously you and I are a little biased. We like the Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. We believe really strongly in what they stand for and what they do. They, you know, the information that they put forward and the people they put forward collate the information. They make sure that there are only truths out there. So you're going to be getting the correct information about your disease and diagnosis. The other thing to do is reach out to survivors. You can find other people in the area who can, who may have shared the experience that you're going through, and that may help educate you about your disease. So I think those are the two parts, know yourself, learn about the disease. If you can't find a good provider, find a good internet resource and really vet the internet resources. Just, just don't take things at face value. You made me feel a lot better about my mom having a, a binder about all my stuff. Cause every time I go to the doctor, she says, make sure you get a printout of your, your labs and everything. Like, oh God, like I, I know, like relax. But now, I mean, with what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, especially, I mean, listen, how many cities have you lived in your life so far, Steve? Well, I'm kind of unique. I just live in one. <laughs> yeah, but you've traveled, right? You've been all over the place. You've seen a bunch of providers, right? So it, it, it is important and your mom's really smart. Um, you know, you're a young guy. Life's going to take you all over the world, you know? So it's, it's nice knowing, you know, where that information is and, and quick and handy, no matter who you're going to see. Another question we have is what effects will this have on my testosterone and hormones before, during, and after treatment? And how will you measure that? Yeah. So, you know, everybody's a little different, but the, the numbers, you know, I, I give everybody. So 5% of the general population, not testicular cancer survivors has what's called hypogonadism or low testosterone. That's typically symptomatic, meaning not only your testosterone levels are low, but you have symptoms of that low testosterone. Most commonly that's low energy and low libido or low sex drive. And listen, young men are busy. They're running around there. They work long hours. They stay up late at night. Low energy can be fairly common, but most young men should have a good sex drive. And so if you've got low energy and low sex drive, it's completely reasonable to think about getting your testosterone checked for testicular cancer survivors. Those numbers go up and for, men with stage one disease who are on surveillance, that number is about 
And for men who've gotten chemotherapy, RPLND, more extensive disease, those numbers can be as high as 20 or 30% of testicular cancer survivors who received multiple therapies can actually have symptomatic hypogonadism or low testosterone. So what we do in our practice and is now coming out in more guidelines is we check testosterone levels at least once a year. We try and do it the first time we see a man. So ideally that would be before an orchiectomy, before we've done anything to your balls. We know what your kind of baseline testosterone levels are when you're feeling normal. We check them once a year if you're feeling okay. And if you ever say, hey, Phil, my I just don't feel great. My energy levels are low. My sex drive isn't what it used to be. It's not often tied to erectile dysfunction, but it can be. So my erections aren't what they used to be. Hey, it's really easy. We know what your baseline testosterone is when you're feeling good. We can check it on an annual basis just to see if anything's changed or you're not feeling good. And, and that'll help us make treatment decisions if you do need testosterone replacement moving forward. The testosterone is something that I kind of had to advocate for myself to get uh, measured, which probably because, like you said, you know, maybe I live in an area that doesn't have as many cases. Um, I mean, I trust my doctor. He's I'm inviting him to my wedding. I mean, he's I, I miss him, honestly, now that I'm not getting treatment as much. But, um, I mean, that's something that I had to advocate, advocate for, and I just recently got it measured. And luckily I was in kind of the mid range, but apparently that's not the case for everybody. Yeah. It's not the case for everybody. And what we also know about low testosterone levels is that it's related really strongly to overall quality of life. Low testosterone can be also, I don't think it causes, and we can't say that, but it can be associated with depression. It can be associated with poor cognitive function or kind of, you know, not feeling as, as mentally acute as you could be. So um, there are a lot of other things that are related to low testosterone. So having a good handle on that is important. And it's one of those things where we try and educate as many providers about this as possible. It's why it's in the most recent AUA guidelines and, you know, the European organizations recommend it because we know testicular cancer survivors have a higher incidence or higher likelihood of having low testosterone. And it's super easy to fix if they do. So uh, it's just something to be aware of and, and talk to providers about. I was kind of surprised that mine was mid range because I have been feeling like the cognitive um, impairment. Maybe I'm just dumb. I don't know. Um, tell me your, I don't know all your story, Steve. So you had chemotherapy. Yeah. So I had orchiectomy June, 2019. I was treated with uh topicide cisplatin and then RPL and D in November, 2019. So yeah. it was all about yeah. six months for me. Yeah. So uh, I'll make two comments about your specific case and other people may, you know, identify with this is first of all, we don't know exactly what your testosterone is supposed to be, right? We base our quote unquote normal testosterone levels on a bell-shaped curve that's defined by guys typically in their 60s who are complaining about bad erections, right? So we don't know exactly what a normal testosterone is for men in their 20s or 30s. If you're in, you know, if you're well into the hundreds of testosterone, you're probably in a normal range, to be honest with you. And like I said, young, busy, active guy, lots of things going on in your life. You're planning a wedding. Things are exciting, right? That can drive down energy levels and make you really exhausted too. Um, so there's lots of reasons to kind of feel low energy. And I would tell you too, you, the other reason you have to be careful is if you give somebody testosterone, even if their levels are normal, they're going to feel great. It's basically a steroid. You're going to feel really good. Mm -hmm. Energy levels are going to go up. You're going to feel more energy. I mean, you know, it's the, the famously the F's you might want to fight and F everything you see uh, when you have super high testosterone levels. So you got to be careful with that. And there are some health related 
side effects with, with super physiologic or too high testosterone. It can increase red blood cell counts. It can lead to, and that can lead to things like stroke or heart attack. So you got to be careful with this. It's not, that's why we just don't prescribe testosterone to anybody willy nilly because it needs to be followed and monitored either by an endocrinologist or a urologist specifically trained in what's called andrology or, or kind of male hormones. So certain things to be aware of there. And then the other part of the cognitive questions that you have is we're becoming more aware of the long-term effects of chemotherapy on brain function. And chemotherapy certainly can affect uh, kind of our neurocognition, how our brain connects and how, you know, the axons and, and kind of the way things connect and, and fire. The good news is what, what we're, what some of the data says now is that nerves and neurologic function will actually recover. It's just on a much different time scale, right? So you play any sports, Steve, you doing, you do anything physical? Golf every once in a while. Not very well, but all right. Golf. Let's say, all right, you're getting out of the car and you twist your ankle. All right. You've recovered within two to four weeks, right? The muscles and the, and then, and kind of the tendons and everything else, it takes time, but two to four weeks neural functions, you're probably looking more on a spectrum of two to four years of recovery for things like that. And so it just takes time to recover from these things and doing things like this, being on a podcast, challenging yourself mentally, you know, staying on top of it can help you get some of that acuity back. That's good to hear because that's why I started my own personal podcast was for that reason. Um, we have another question kind of just about chemo. Um, they said, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could ask if radiation is, is radiation the preferred treatment for stage 3A embryonal carcinoma that has been unresponsive to chemo, atopocytes is platin. Yeah, that's a really tough question. And I would say there's really no standard treatment for, for non-responsive um, germ cell tumors. Um, and I'm really sorry, uh, whoever wrote that is, is, is struggling with this. You know, as we talked about in the beginning, there are a lot of the, the survival rate for testicular cancer is high, but it's really challenging when it gets into this recurrent and relapsing state and we don't respond to typical therapies. So uh, the short answer is radiation is not your typical choice for refractory uh, non-seminomous germ cell tumors. Typically you would go to second line chemotherapy or what we call salvage chemotherapy or high dose chemotherapy with a stem cell transplant. But in certain unique circumstances, uh, radiation could be preferred over surgical resection if something's in a really tricky surgical area. For instance, if somebody has what's called a mediastinal tumor, the mediastinum is kind of the area where the heart sits in, in the middle of our chest. And you can imagine operating in that area. There's a lot of really sensitive structures that if damaged or injured could be incompatible with life. And so you can imagine where there are circumstances where it may be better to try radiation than what's called a heroic surgery or, or surgery that may really hurt somebody. Wow. Well, best of luck to the loved one of that person. Absolutely. Um, let's kind of jump back. We can kind of piggyback off of that. Um, when you are diagnosing someone, are you the one diagnosing someone or are they being referred to you after diagnosis? Yeah, we get a little bit of both. Um, you know, urologists will, will see and manage a lot of the men right from the beginning of a testicular cancer diagnosis. So at a big center like Penn, uh, just like it was at Hopkins when I was before that, we'll get a fair amount of referrals with new testicular masses. And we'll also get referrals for men after they've had an orchiectomy with a new diagnosis of testicular cancer. 
both of those are totally appropriate. You know, orchiectomy and the initial management of testicular cancer is something that, that the average urologist can see, will see, and can do a really good job with an orchiectomy. So you, you don't need to feel sometimes that you need to have your orchiectomy at the greatest place in the world for that surgery. That certainly can be managed by the vast majority of surgeons and urologists. What's really nice in that referral pattern though, is people recognize their limits, right? They say, well, listen, you know, I, maybe I haven't done an orchiectomy in a while, or maybe I haven't seen a testicular cancer in a while, or I'm not sure if this is a testicular cancer. Let me send it to people who look at these a lot. And then, or now I've done the orchiectomy, Mr. Smith has testicular cancer. Let me get him to the place that can help him make the best management decision. And, uh, you know, both of those are, are appropriate. We'll also see patients, you know, at the big centers, we'll see patients after they've had chemotherapy and they've got a residual mass and they've got to talk about RPLND because we do a lot of those too. One thing that's talked about a lot with doctors is um, bedside manner and talking about patient provider relationship, how kind of, you know, difficult is it to, break the news to somebody and how do you prepare yourself and your, you know, yourself and the patient for that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's challenging. And I will tell you, honestly, we don't really get taught it well in medical school and you learn a lot by seeing good and poor examples in your training. And most of us train for at least five, six or seven years to, to get where we are to manage, you know, cancer patients independently. And Everybody's going to do it different. There's no style that's right, wrong. The, the most important thing when I try and teach our residents and medical students and talk to them about it is making a connection. And that's easier for some people than it is for others. And, and there, there certainly can be challenges there. But the way I always try to say do it is, is try to put yourself in their shoes, in their situation. And sometimes that's really hard with testicular cancer patients because I look across the, the room from a guy and his wife and they have small kids like I have small kids or they're trying to start a family. And I remember where we were a few years ago, you know, starting our family. And in some senses, it's really easy to make that connection or try and understand what they're going through. In some ways that makes it incredibly challenging because it is so real. You feel it kind of deep inside of you. And so that's the, that's, I think the whole crux of it is making a connection and trying to think, what would you want to know and how would you want to be told? And the most important thing there is the truth. There's no beating around the bush. I, I try not to use euphemisms, you know, trying, listen, this is what it is. You likely have cancer, say the word, understand it. Only when you kind of say it and own it, can you start to process it? So I'm very honest and upfront with people. I tell them exactly you know, what it is, tell them the statistics, the best that I can provide for them, but also say, listen, numbers are numbers. People are on either side of those numbers. And, you know, we want you to understand, you know, as we move through this, what, what this all means. So truth, understanding, honesty, I think those are the important parts of a, of a really, uh, of a good connection with people. You mentioned making the connection and does that kind of muck up the waters when you're about to perform kind of a difficult surgery or do you feel a sense of more pressure because of that? Or are you able to kind of just get straight to business and do what you need to do? You know, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, it makes me think there are, there are all kinds of surgeons out there and there are people who respond and, and motivate in different ways. Um, I've always joked, you know, there's two kinds of surgeons, those who want to operate on their own family members and those who want nothing to do with their own family. Um, 
I've always been the kind of person where, you know, uh, even though I wouldn't actually do this, I, I, I would want to operate on my family. You know, I, I trust myself implicitly. Um, I've, I train, I prepare, I'm confident in what I do. And so, you know, having a personal relationship with somebody is okay with me. That actually strengthens the bond. Um, and I think I'm able to detach that personal relationship in the operating room, but perhaps, you know, that's a reason why some people don't form so such close relationships. Maybe it's a little harder for them to detach and why they may suffer from a poor bedside manner or, or poorer bedside manner than some others is because they don't want to become attached and they may have a hard time in the operating room doing what they need to do. And, you know, it's, uh, like I said, there's different, people are different, processing things are different. Um, I, I feel like, you know, a strong relationship with people makes me a better surgeon. Yeah. I have a friend that had a surgery by you and, and he swears by it. So <laughs> you're doing something right. Um, hmm. Another direction I want to go in, in the patient provider relationship is different insurances. You mentioned the, the state of the United States healthcare system you know, maybe not everybody has the ability to have a surgery at a high volume center. Is it difficult to turn people away? Do you turn people away? Do you find a way to make it work? Yeah, unfortunately we do turn people away and it's never us that turn people away. It's literally that we, we can't do it. And some, depending on the institution, there are the ability to take care of patients without cost, but that's depends on the institution. Nonprofits are different than, than profit companies and um, profit or for-profit hospitals. And so, and then kind of healthcare has changed a lot of that too, where insurance companies literally will not allow it to happen. And if you operate on somebody whose insurance company is not allowing it, you're going to burden them with tens of thousands of dollars in, in potential debt. And so it, it's a real challenge. And it's a real limit of health insurance in this country as it currently sits. You know, there's there's a deeper political conversation here, which uh, I don't really want to get into, Steve, but That's I'm fine. happy yeah. to touch on, on some of this is that listen, most of us who deal with testicular cancer on a regular basis think that we should regionalize care for this disease. And by regionalizing meaning, listen, orchiectomies can be done, I already said, by the vast majority of urologists in this country chemotherapy probably should go to some larger centers that are more used to dealing with, you know, germ cell tumors specifically and some of the issues that you may run into and post chemotherapy, RPLNDs really should probably be done at a few refined centers around the country that are dealing with this volume and can ensure good outcomes. Now you can make the argument that flying somebody from, you know, um, a rural area to a more populous area, costs a couple hundred dollars in airfare, maybe more than that, a few hundred dollars in airfare, but can save a lot of money if there's fewer complications and less issues after surgical treatment. But then it sets a precedent where that's now acceptable for all other disease states and all other issues. And that's where the problem really runs in. I don't think anybody would argue that testis cancer shouldn't be regionalized. It's just how do you operationalize it for one disease and not other diseases in this country? So, um, yeah, the finances of it are really challenging. We try and make arguments for patients all of the time. If anybody's listening and going through this process, one of the ways, the simplest way it often works is somebody will be what's called out of network. You have, you can, you should try and schedule surgery or the appointment. It will get denied. You can't, honestly, us as providers or another institution can't do anything until it gets denied. Once it's denied, then an appeal can be filed 
And so, uh, and once the appeal is filed, then we do what are called peer to peer conversations where either the surgeon or the surgeon's team will talk directly with the insurance company and, uh, or one of the referring docs will talk with the insurance company to make the case that, listen, we can't do this locally. We would recommend that it go to someplace like Penn or someplace like Indiana or Memorial Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson or USC or Chicago, wherever it may be. But the understand that the, the surgeon who wants to take care of you is, can't do anything actually until it's denied, which is the weirdest part of that process. So get your denial so that you can get the appeal. And that's part of the process as it works through in this country, as it currently stands. I think that was like a gold nugget of advice right there. I never heard anything like that. Yeah. And listen, these things change. So listen, six months from now, things may change, but currently vast majority of the time you have to have a denial before you can put an appeal. Um, piggybacking on that. Yeah. We'll, we'll jump back to, you know, the different types of lifestyle things that you take into consideration when treating a patient. So would you say socioeconomic, um, you know, the socioeconomics of a person also play a role in the treatment? Yeah, I think there's so many things that lay into you. And you think about who we, we are. There's so many facets to, to who we are as individuals. We, none of us exist completely as individuals. We have families, we have social structures, we have employment uh, components to our lives. We have education, we have finances, and all of that ties into who we are. And all of that, I think, is, impacts the management decisions that we should make. Right. And so you really have to do take into to account these things. Um, one of my mentors in, in residency was a guy named Patrick Walsh, who was a, who's a prostate cancer kind of um, giant. And one of the first questions he used to ask people in clinic is what kind of work do you do? And not as a way of gathering kind of their employment history or, or their finances. But for him, it was a way to tailor the conversation because in, in the way he described it is, listen, you're going to talk about surgery very differently than you're going to, to a carpenter, than you might to an engineer, than you might to another physician, than you might to a lawyer. Right. And you, you just want people to, you want people to understand what they're facing and what they're going to undergo and understanding where they're coming from can help you tailor those conversations and help them make the best decisions for them. Awesome. Is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't cover? No, it's been a great conversation. You know, I think we covered some of the, the, the really important things, right? Know yourself, know your disease, seek out other opinions, find other survivors. I think these are all really important keys that get lost. I think one of the things that's really important to touch on in just kind of the survivorship and mental health piece that I didn't explicitly say, so I want to take the opportunity to say it now, more testicular cancer survivors die of suicide and mental health issues than die of disease. And they may or may not be related, but if we don't have the conversation about providers or men are not aware that these things could happen to them, then we're really doing them a disservice. And my good friend, Nick Cost, who's at Colorado, he, he says it's patients. says, but I don't talk to you about mental health and tell you about suicide or the risks of suicide moving forward. I'm doing you a disservice. And I think it's really important. So we have that mental health conversation with all of our survivors and just say, listen, everything you're feeling is normal. You may feel down. You may feel out. This is a huge insult to who you are and that's okay. Own it, feel it, work through it. But if you have trouble sleeping, if you're struggling with your relationships, if you're having a really hard time at work, if you have feelings of hurting yourself or other people, that's the time to really reach out and 
it's okay to get a mental health provider. It may not be for the rest of your life. It may be for three months. It may be for six months. It may be for a year while you're going through chemotherapy and recovering. But all of these things are a normal part of being a cancer survivor, and we shouldn't shy away from them. Great, great points. Thank you for explicitly saying that. Um, I thought of another question kind of off of that one, but, um, you know, if you, you're referring to a mental health counselor or you mentioned sperm making earlier, I know that my insurance did not cover sperm making. So that, that's another thing. Like, is that something that you as a provider would argue that it should be covered because X, Y, and Z? Yeah, it's tough. That's, um, Sperm banking and testicular prosthetics are one we run into. And sometimes we run into a brick wall with the insurance companies. And it's really challenging because a little bit of money upfront for sperm banking and cryopreservation could save a ton of money and resources and effort and stress and heartache for in vitro fertilization or other assisted reproductive technologies down the road. But because this is such a rare disease that's really not brought to the attention of a lot of the insurance companies and, and a lot of the payers, even, uh, well, it doesn't typically happen with Medicare because cystic cancer survivors are younger. But um, yeah, it's a major issue. We can write letters. We can, um, we often try and make the claim that, you know, if a, uh, a woman with a, a genital cancer or, um, you know, ovarian cancer or even breast cancer, was having issues with reconstruction or reproduction. You wouldn't deny that claim. Why are we denying it for men? We don't always win that battle, but uh, often a strongly worded letter with something to those, to that effect uh, will sometimes help. Well, hopefully over the next few years, we can kind of change the course of testicular cancer in all facets. Yeah. And like we said, I mean, this is a disease of survivors. The vast majority of men and their families will beat this. So how do we help them achieve normal lives after? As the uh, chief of urology at a hospital, I don't know if you can, but could you shout out different hospitals around the United States, if the world, if you know, so if anybody's in those areas and can, you know, easily access them for more resources? Yeah, no, I, listen, our community is relatively small. Uh, I've, um, I'm happy to share some names in hospitals. I will start off by saying, I'm sure I'm going to forget somebody and there are really good people out there. So I apologize if I leave anybody off this uh, list, but just kind of thinking geographically, if you start on the, the East Coast, I mean, obviously Dana-Farber Cancer uh, Institute in Boston is world renowned for, for testicular cancer care. Uh, Chris Sweeney is the main medical oncologist there. And Memorial Sloan Kettering, Joel Scheinfeld and, and uh, Darren Feldman have been running that, uh, you know, that program at, at a world-class level for a long time. Uh, coming down, you know, uh, I don't want to toot our, our horn too loudly, but we're happy to see any testicular cancer survivor in the area. Indiana University with Larry Einhorn and, you know, the legacy left, left by Donahue and Foster and now held by Clint Carey and, and Tim Masterson is just exceptional. Keep working your way down. There are certainly providers at Duke, uh, UNC Chapel Hill are known for their uh, and Emory for testicular cancer care. In Florida, Moffitt Cancer, cancer Center is an exceptional place. Uh, MD Anderson, always well known for cancer care. Mayo Clinic in Rochester, University of Chicago, Scott Egner is a good friend and a, and a great testicular cancer expert. I already mentioned uh, Nick Cost in Denver. If you're in that region, see a Dineshmand at USC. And now Aditya Bagrodia, who's at UCSD instead of UT Southwestern. I mean, these are all giants around the, um, uh, around the, 
uh, at least the U.S. And then obviously Washington and Seattle has some great places too. So I, I apologize if I'm missing any of the U.S. Um, friends and colleagues out there. Canada has world-class testicular cancer care. Remember their centers are a little bit regionalized, so it's easier to get good testicular cancer care. Sometimes there and get to an expert. Europe has phenomenal places uh, as well. Um, so, so just seek it out, make sure that the people you're, you're, uh, you know, are experienced and, and you like them. And one last thing that I want to add, and um, Dr. Parazio, I think will, will be there. I think you're planning on being there. We're supposed to have Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation, a virtual conference next month for April, Testicular Cancer Awareness Month. Um, more information can be found at testicularcancerawarenessfoundation.org. Do you have anything that you want to add about that? Yeah, you know, obviously we're disappointed we can't do this in, in person, but we're trying to kind of modify these virtual conferences. So there will be very short kind of didactics, uh, meaning lectures from the experts. We'll try to make them as interactive as possible and as short as possible because we know the strength of these conferences are really the interpersonal connections. So we'll have small group breakout sessions. We'll have a social hour after the meeting, you know, hour to two hours, meet other survivors, learn about your disease, learn about each other. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to, to talk on this podcast. You gave a lot of great information and um, can people reach out to you? I know you said that you're accessible by email. I'm sure you get a lot. So yeah. email, social media, happy to talk at any time. It's a real pleasure talking with you, Steve. I, I hope we benefit some people out there and uh, I hope they get the care they deserve. Thanks so much. For more information and resources for your testicular cancer journey, visit testiculaircancerawarenessfoundation.org. You can also follow us on social media at Testis Cancer. We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.